This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right, Christine, you are probably one of the most unique experts so far that I've had on the podcast doing this whole oil and gas discussion um, because you've spent actual time in the industry um, working, you know, working in a lot of these large ENPs. And so you've had an inside look into what most people just kind of take as an armchair analyst expert approach. So I'm very excited to have this conversation. But before we dive in, who is Christine Guerrero and how did you get started in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, so basically I'm a petroleum engineer. I, I'm from rural Oklahoma. I, I grew up going to a really small country school and um, kind of like the low income type area of Oklahoma because my father's a rancher. And when uh, even though I was a straight A student, you know, in, in high school and in grade school, um, my grandfather told me, you know, just point out blank because he was a very frank person and I'm also a very frank person. But, you know, he told me he's like straight A students from your um, high school, you're college dropouts. You, you don't make it. So uh, like when I was coming out of high school, I actually thought I was going to study political science and go into law. But um, 
you know, it was hard to get scholarship money. I had come from a large family and I didn't want to be a burden, you know, to my parents. So I wanted to basically be able to fund, you know, as much as my um, university as I could. And um, along those lines, my grandfather, uh, who was retired, said, well, you know, if you go talk to a friend of mine at the University of Tulsa, maybe you can get, you know, a scholarship. So it just so happens that my grandfather was the fourth person in the entire world to get a PhD in petroleum engineering. He wow. actually founded the uh, petroleum engine engineering department at the University of Tulsa and at one time had been the dean of engineering. So mm -hmm. the the uh, the top, you know, department head was someone that he had directly trained. And, you know, I had the grades. I went and had, you know, talk with him. And then and he, you know, he just told me flat out and he looks at my he's like, well, I know who you are. And, you know, you've got the GPA. If you'll come to Tulsa and study petroleum engineering. We'll give you a half ride. And so I basically was like, OK, done deal. Half my college yep. is paid for. So that's how I got started in petroleum engineering. Within a month or two of, of starting my degree, all of the uh, oil and gas majors had come to the university and they were looking for summer interns. I ended up getting an internship with uh, Chevron in the Gulf of Mexico. And um, that three months that I worked that summer, I made more money than the other nine months that I worked part time for, wow. you know, while I was in college. Because, again, I was, you know, I was paying my way through college. You know, I wasn't, yep. you know, even though my grandfather was somebody, you know, my father didn't go that route. You know, <laughs> Plus, I had five brothers and sisters <laughs> and two cousins who live with us. So yep. so it doesn't matter if you make a lot of money when you have that many kids. I mean, <laughs> that's true. So, you know, that's how I got started in the industry. I mean, basically, I was like, I need someone to help, you know, pay me, you know, while I'm while I'm going going through this. And, you know, and my grandfather, you know, I mean, when he uh, kind of made this connection with me to go into petroleum engineering, I don't think that he actually thought that I was going to stay the route. I think he actually mm -hmm. thought that I would get into college. I'd knock out my um, my basics. And I'd figure out how to find uh, scholarship money in the other professions. But that inter internship was so lucrative <laughs> that I was just like, OK, no, I'll do my sophomore year as petroleum engineering as well. Yeah. And I mean, and they just kept giving me jobs each summer and I just kept hanging in there. And then finally, I was like, well, you know, I think maybe I'll work five or 10 years. I'll make some money. And then if I want to go to law school, you know, I can always, you know, do yeah. that. I mean, you have the money to do it at, at that point. Yeah, exactly. So, so I really just, I followed the money, you know, and, but I'm also a real adventurous type person, you know, I'm, I'm scruffy, you know, I'm a farm girl, you know, um, so like I was drawn to drilling. So within petroleum engineering, there's like three disciplines. There's the reservoir engineers who tend to be like the math geeks. There are the production engineers that are really good, you know, with, uh, with flow, fluid dynamics and things like that. Um, and then, you know, there's the drillers that are more mechanically inclined, um, you know, but the thing about drilling versus other, other professions is that you can get a more rapid exposure to just working around the world. And I wanted to see the world. I mean, I'm from a nowhere uh, county in, in Oklahoma. And when I went to go visit my grandparents' house growing up, like they had tchotchkes from all over the world because my grandfather was constantly traveling all over the world to these conferences and places. And so growing up, you know, I saw these little artifacts and I just always wanted to go to these places. 
So, so with my career, you know, I wanted a career that could show me the world. And so that's why I went into drilling, but I actually came out of university in 2000, which was a bit of a downturn in the industry. And so I wasn't able to get a job as a drilling engineer for an operator, but I was able to get a job with a service company. And so that's how I started out with Schlumberger. They told me, you know, if we hire you, you can see the world. And then they planted me in the Gulf of Mexico. And a couple of years later, I'm like, hey, when am I going to see the world? And, and, and they basically said, well, the clients love you. You're never going to leave. And so that's why. <laughs> and so that's why I left and I went to go work for Precision Drilling, which is a Canadian based company. Mm -hmm. And um, and I did get to see a lot more of the world with precision drilling. I mean, I went up to Canada. I went down to Mexico. I worked on land as well as offshore. Um, they, I, I actually ended up uh, working in Greece and um, uh, Austria. I went to Indonesia and, and taught some training classes. Like, I mean, I was I was seeing the world. Mm -hmm. But I was also working all the time. Like I was working, like I was averaging like 25 days a month on a rig. I was making great money. I paid off all my student loans, but you know, I, I like didn't have any relationships outside of work relationships because no one is going to, you know, want to date anyone who is never around. Yep. So, and, and I was, you know, I was getting into my, uh, my late twenties. And so I just thought, okay, well, I need to, you know, get a, um, uh, get a real job, you know, <laughs> get a normal lifestyle. And mm -hmm. so, and so uh, that's when I started like looking at my options and I ran into uh, someone at an alumni event who just happened to be a senior director at Chevron. And he knew me from my college days because he had been on the petroleum advisory board for the university of Tulsa. And he had been, you know, one of the students, my grandfather. So, um, and, and so basically, you know, he was like, hey, you know, if, if you want a job, you know, submit your resume again. And, and I did. Next thing you know, I'm working in a Chevron's drilling optimization group and um, their energy technology group, which which uh, basically like anytime they have high impact work to be done, um, if they have challenges and hurdles that need to be met, like they've got like a group of experts and also kind of like their high potential employees that they sink into this group. And they're constantly working on the challenges within the, co the company in terms of technical challenges, whether it be increasing drilling, you know, in harsh environments or um, increasing like flow rates of wells. Well, I mean, like they'll even work with like Los Alamos National National Laboratories, like they'll hmm. work with like these former uh, military gurus to try to come up with different techniques to maximize production. And that was like an awesome job. I mean, because then I got to work like on all of the key basins that Chevron had within this organization. I mean, in a very short time, like I was going offshore in the North Sea. You know, I went offshore, um, like offshore Newfoundland. Like I'm on a rig in the middle of wintertime that the winds are so strong that if you didn't hang on to a handrail, you were going to get like swept across the rig floor. I mean, Jeez. it was we we're like we were on iceberg watch. I mean, it was wow. like that extreme, you know, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. You know, I can, <laughs> and then, and then I'd also, you know, go on, um, like, like I went down to Argentina and like there was a, a, a desert field there and, uh, but they were drilling through these conglomerates, which are also like harsh drilling conditions. And so, you know, I, I got to go there and, and see all that. And 
like I wrote some technical papers along with peers. And so, so then I'm like getting to run around to all these global conferences and, and present my work. Um, I mean, it was great, but I'm also somebody who like, I'm like kind of like drawn to the thrill of things. And so after a couple of years, like I'm always like looking for that next new challenge. And, um, and so that's when I decided to go ahead and get my MBA to try to diversify from just having like a drilling background into like more understanding the business and um, and Chevron. I mean, they pay for 70 percent of it. So right. so long as I was working, producing, I mean, they're like, yeah, anything to keep you happy, you know, like here, we'll pay for your um, your studies. Just don't let it interfere with your work. So <laughs> which, you know, which I did. So at nights and yeah. weekends, I mean, that's all I was doing. And and so once I got my MBA, they moved me into an economics role with the, their Nigeria Mid-Africa group, group, which also looked after Latin America. So so there within that economics role, which was also like very interesting because then I got to like look at all of the different contract terms for these different um, countries within my focus area and then figure out kind of like the advantages and the disadvantages uh, economically for for these different countries. And then also along that thread, you know, like you'd also work up like production profiles of what you look like, what it looked like the well would perform in those regions. Mm -hmm. And so and so like I was getting to see, you know, uh, what areas had the best flow rates, you know, what what uh, areas were just like um, so encumbered by the contract terms that you had to more or less like discover an elephant in order to make it work. and then uh, and then sometimes like we would have blocks that we'd explored and maybe we'd found oil, but they just weren't economic. And and then like, you know, like I mean, I was actually flying to Angola and Nigeria and I was part of the team that would be meeting with the government and with the local um, resource owners. Like maybe there'd be like like there were times that there'd be a prince, like a Nigerian prince sitting at the table. And and he, you know, and basically, I mean, he would want his money. So he'd be like, hey, when are you going to, uh, pr- you know, produce this? Like, when are we going to get a development decision? When is this going to flow? You know, I want my royalties, you know, and, and I'd be there with the economics. And I would just be like, hey, this just doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's never going to make money, you know. So, um, you know, not unless you have like some big advancement or if their infrastructure gets put in nearby. So so usually like when you have an undeveloped area that first FID decision to actually come in and put infrastructure in that location to make an area producible, like that's the biggest hurdle. Like right. that requires the most bit, you know, the most capital, you know, intensive investment. But then once that's already paid and it's in the, in hindsight, then when you're doing um, inf- infrastructure led exploration and exploitation of these plays, I mean, those are much, much cheaper. So, so those are kind of like the sweet spot opportunities, you know, but at the same time, it's like, if you can go find an elephant in an area like Guyana, which we'll talk about later, that uh, has uh, extremely uh, productive um, reservoir properties and good contract terms, you know, I mean, those are just so lucrative that it's worth it to take the risk to step out into exploration. But, you know, but this is an old industry. You know, it's 100 years old. So like all of the easy to find stuff has basically been gobbled up. And then it just gets harder and harder as time goes on because you have to start stepping out into more and more challenging environments like such as deep water. Um, And I mean, deep water is not new. You know, I mean, it's like 
15, 20 years old, you know, but there was a step change in deep water about 10 years ago with, uh, it's called a managed pressure drilling technology that actually allows you to more um, closely control the pressure at the drill bit. And so that's hmm. become a step change that's really helped the economics in deep water to uh, why does it why does it help the economics so much this managed pressure well because efficiency losses like if you have well bore problems that um cause you to have to close in your well and maybe drill a second well mm -hmm. you know sidetrack whatever um you know i mean it's also from a safety perspective you know i mean it's it's like controlling the the pressures down there because i mean we could be talking about you know 20 30,000 pounds of pressure that you're trying to keep down in the hole because yeah. if it gets away from you i mean we all saw you know what happened with the the bp macondo well you know these it's just a it's a zero risk environment for letting things get out of hand because when they go south i mean they it's catastrophic yeah. so so and and then you know after that event with macondo the uh, the amount of rigor and the risk tolerance for a lot of companies it really went like like the, the risk tolerance just went way down so so anytime that there's a surprise and you don't want to don't you know don't know what's going on or if things start looking a little um uh scary i mean you pretty much shut everything in and then mm -hmm. and you evaluate what's going on and um like that's just all you know racking up the the money and the days and stuff like that but um you know, but again, it's like as you as you progress with these fields, the more data that you have, the the more you understand the risk and you mitigate those risks in the designs, and 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 so they just kind of get cheaper, you know, over time, you know, with the learning curve. So um, you start getting more and more efficient in the ways you're doing, and like even uh, you know, if anyone listens to a lot of earnings calls, like uh, recently on Murphy's call, you know, or even on everyone's call actually like all the analysts are all worried about what's happening with oil field service costs because everyone know that oil field service costs are that they're increasing you know 10 20 percent like uh, across the um you know across the realm and uh and murphy i mean they basically uh drove the point home i think very well they're like we're not worried about the cost of services so much as we're focused on efficiency because you can pay 20% more if you can get that well done to your schedule. Yep. It, it, you know, versus versus maybe paying yesterday's cost and that well taking twice as much time. So so yeah. it's really about operational performance. You know, how how good are your operating techniques? That's how you save money in efficiency, not so much in trying to get the lowest cost operator, you know, the lowest cost yep. service company, you know. It's 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 yep. about it's about performance. Got it. And so that was, I mean, you gave us a huge crash course on kind of your history in the in the industry. And it's it's a great springboard for discussing maybe what you are able to see from the inside that other investors, let's say that, you know, just maybe run screens or are just interested in the space, like myself, interested in diving deeper, like what you know about the industry that others who just don't work in it, like maybe don't know or will take a long time to know or maybe never know um, that you think maybe gives you some sort of insights or edge. And I'm not talking about non-material information, obviously, but just like general insights into how things actually work um, within these companies that 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 give you some sort of analytical or informational you know, advantage. I'm like, is that your dogs acting up? Hopefully, yeah, hopefully we don't have to mute here. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can't hear them, by the way. So you I think can't? I think they're good. Nope. Okay, well, good. I, I did buy a new microphone, so maybe it's actually working to cancel them out. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> so so anyway, um, like one thing that my focus is on, because from an economic perspective, I tend to think like a big oil company, you know, allocation of capital, allocation of resources, you know. So, so I think about margin and I think about scalability. So, mm -hmm. so from the COVID crash until, can you hear me still? I'm sorry. My dogs are going great. Yeah, I can barely hear them. You're fine. So from the COVID crash, uh, really into 2020, I mean, all the, all the market chatter was about the um, short cycle projects, like the low hanging fruit. I mean, that's pretty much shale, you know, yeah. shale is like a cash engine because it's like you, you, um, you know, you drill a well and it's, it's pretty easy to drill that well and it's cheap to drill that well and you get it online and you, and you start getting your returns back, you know, very quickly. Yeah. But just like you get your returns back very quickly, the production of that well declines very quickly. So, so these short cycle projects end up being like a treadmill. You mm -hmm. have to run steady state, you know, just in order to maintain flat production. And for the past couple of years, a lot of these shale plays, they benefited from the fact that in prior years, they pre-drilled a bunch of these wells called ducks, yes. drilled yep. uncompleted wells. So, so half of the spend was kind of like behind them. And, yeah. and, in, and in this depressed period of low capital spending, they were able to like dip into the piggy bank of, of, of drilled wells and only pay for the completion part of the well, which usually might be, you know, 30 to 50% of the spend, depending on how yeah. complicated the completion is. So, so the market kind of got this false sense of confidence in how cheaply it can be for them to maintain production. Right. And, and so going forward their uh, the, you know, their treadmill, in addition to having done what it's, it's already done, you know, it's having to do that at a higher speed, the speed being the rate of spin because costs are inc increasing. Uh, Devon energy on their call this week. I mean, they got hammered because their operating costs just jumped from 30, uh, you know, $30 to $40. And, uh, and everyone's like, oh, my God, you know, and you'll see it was down like 10 percent on the day. And, yeah. and I'm just kind of like sitting back in my chair because I, I listen to dozens of conference calls. I mean, I listen I listen to them until I'm sick of listening to them because you just get so many key insights. And it's so interesting, you know, like what they're saying. And uh, and and really, in, like in, in my mind, you know, uh, what Devin said on their call is probably going to be what we're hearing from a lot of uh, shale pure place. You know, they're all going to be showing cost increases, but we're not going to be seeing any more barrels really coming out of those plays. Um, and for that reason, I have like sold more than half of my shell pure play positions. And I've, I've moved that money into sectors that are actually scaling up and sectors that are increasing their margins. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously oil field services margins are increasing. Uh, contracts that were put into play a year or two years years ago, those contracts are up for renewal and they're going to yep. be renewed at higher rates. Yes. Um, uh, and again, talking about earnings calls. So like when all these rig contractors were uh, reporting their calls, I mean, they're all saying how rates are going up and they're going to continue to go up as these as these old contracts are up for renewal. And, and they were also kind of pinging to the market 
you know, that they thought it was going like these land rigs are the high spec land rigs are potentially all going to um, forty thousand uh, dollars per day, which, you know, everyone's like reeling against. But I'm like, no, that's called a reality check, people. You know, right. you've been living off of, of, of a false sense of confidence in terms of a cost for the prior two years, two, three, four years, really, even um, because of this downturn, you know, in the industry. And um, another thing that I think a lot of people don't get is that rigs aren't fixed. They can go anywhere in the world. Yep. So so if U.S. operators aren't keeping those rigs busy, Argentina wants them. Saudi Arabia wants them. Yep. You know, I mean, and you'll start like, a bidding like war. These, rigs, these rigs will leave the U.S. and they will not come back. And, and that's happened. I mean, there's been a lot of rigs that have left and they're not coming back, you know, both onshore and offshore rigs. So so point forward. And I mean, this will be something that's played out in the year ahead. You know, I mean, everyone's going to be asking, how come the, you, these companies can't increase their production? And, and they're just going to, I mean, it's it, it, like, like they'll have to reactivate old rigs and those old rigs. I mean, it, it could take a year to work out all the kinks in them. So mm -hmm. again, back to the efficiency discussion, you know, <laughs> I mean, you want to work with a piece of equipment that's been working well for you for the last couple of years, instead of taking a risk on something that was more or less scrapped for right. five years or 10 years and now has to be completely retrofitted at a, at a very high cost and, and, you know, and bring that back into play. So uh, I, I think that's probably something that I, that I think about more than the average, um, you know, market participant. Uh, it also means that my, um, my horizon tends to be longer than theirs. You know, yeah. I think a lot of market particip participants, you know, they're really only thinking about the quarter or, or the year ahead. And mm -hmm. I tend to think like on a, a three to five year horizon, you know, yeah. and, and uh, because of that, I mean, I'm really not a swing trader. You know, I only, I only will do like swing trades if something just gets like obviously oversold or overselled. I mean, really, I just kind of, you know, I go in when things are super cheap and then, and then I just let them simmer, you know, yep. and, and, and slowly the pot will boil and, and it, and it might take years to boil you know, for the temperature to rise up, but I mean, you know, but it does rise up, you know, and there, and there are still a lot of companies out there that are deeply um, uh, discounted in my mind, despite having a glorious run over the last two years that, that might still have, you mm -hmm. know, 50 to hundred percent upside in them over the next two years. So, and, and when I, when I talk about these companies, I mean, I'm primarily looking to oil field services and to offshore producers that have scalability uh, and scalability in terms of of like infrastructure led uh, exploration opportunities, or maybe they've already made discoveries over the last five years that haven't been priced into their share price that over the coming years are going to end up being like a huge catalyst for their stock point forward. So, so, and then, and to that point, you know, I think we can talk about the first company that I bought during the uh, COVID crisis in March, 2020, yeah. the yeah, first company, yeah, the first company I bought was Hess Corporation. It just so happens that the last company that I worked for in my career was Hess Corporation, hmm. where I was a Hess uh, strat exploration strategy and planning advisor. 
So in that role, I was primarily focused on um, the GOM, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. Yep. But, you know, but I also would like look at other regions of the world that Hess was interested in. And, and these different areas within a company, they all kind of have like their country manager or their basin managers. And when it comes portfolio uh, and like portfolio management, you know, budgeting cycle time, these basins all compete with for capital within the corporate budget. And so you have to more or less prove, you know, that your opportunity is better than any other opportunity in the world in order right. for your group, you know, to get the most funds. And and Gulf of Mexico, like when I worked there, um, you know, in 2013 and 2014, I mean, the prices there um, still weren't great. You know, they were OK, you know, but but they weren't great. And um and we were actually getting rid of a lot of the blocks that we had just because we knew that we weren't going to um, do anything with them before they expired. You know, they just the money wasn't there. The capital wasn't there. But uh, but the group was like looking at other basins and along and, and along those lines in 2014, you know, Exxon presented the opportunity of, of being involved in exploration well in Guyana, which mm -hmm. was the Lisa well. And that well hit and it hit big. It was huge. Um, and, and that happened at the end of, of 2014. It just so happened that I got laid off, you know, by Hess at the beginning of 2015, because that's when the price of oil like really crashed. And so you don't really need an expiration strategy and planner when you don't have any money. <laughs> yeah. like, like the whole team just gets, you know, reduced and laid off. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't take it personally. You know, I, I uh, ended up, um, just focusing on on private investments that I had at the time and uh, kind of like went on some boondoggles of some uh, things that I was always interested in, nice. uh, like researching and studying, uh, you know, on my own and traveling a little bit more. And uh, and and I just kind of I, I wasn't I wasn't in a hurry. So it's like 2015. I really didn't do a whole lot. Um 2016, I was kind of starting to figure out if I wanted to change my career or whatever. Um, when Harvey hit Houston, I ended up buying some distressed properties. And then I was like rehabbing uh, some flooded out houses that I that I owned. Um, but when I look back on my taxes in 2018 to like my spend, <laughs> and, like I realized that I wasn't making any money. You know, it's like I was just kind of like uh, I was really kind of like living off the fact that some of my uh, market stock market investments were doing well and, and the real estate. I mean, it was paying for itself, but I mean, I wasn't getting rich, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't performing on like on a, a financial way, like anything like how I had before, but, but I had like got exposed to all this real estate and it takes a while to kind of like roll out of it. So, so 2018, like I'm like closing things up and I'm rolling out of real estate 2019, like I'm doing even more, but then I was also like heavily hitting, hitting the ground trying to find a job back in oil and gas because I could see oil and gas was starting to ramp back up. So, so in 2019, I was talking to BP and Repsol and Chevron and, you know, Fieldwood and like all these different companies. And I'm going in and I'm talking to them about these strategy and planning roles, which are very niche roles within the organization. They might only have like one or two people, you know, we're really small teams within the organization. And everyone was basically telling me the same thing. They're like, we've got to ramp up. 
uh, the industry's been underfunded since 2015. We've got to start spending. We've got to start hiring people. We've got to start uh, replacing the reserves the, uh, that has been chewed into by production, you know, mm -hmm. for the last five or six years. Yep. And, uh, and, at, and, you know, and for a senior level role, it could take you six months or a year to get into a position because, because the hiring for those roles are so rigorous um, to, to actually get into place. And, you know, and I, and I knew that. So going into 2020, like I'm in the final steps of a couple different positions and then bam, it's like COVID hit. And all of a sudden I'm getting emails right and left about those jobs being closed now right? because <laughs> they no longer existed. Like now all my friends that are still in the industry are getting laid off again. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, and, and, and I'm like looking at my stock portfolio and, you know, I'm seeing everything going down and I'm like watching for opportunities. But uh, the day that oil went negative, I really was just like, no, this is grossly oversold. You know, I'm like, I'm like, the only, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like I'm yeah. watching and I just was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I knew I was like, this is the, the opportunity of my lifetime. And so I sold all my mutual funds, you know, all my tech stocks. I mean, everything that had been kind of like keeping me like had been life support for the previous few years. I, I sold it all. And I just started bottom feeding oil and gas. The first company I bought was Hess Corporation, the company that laid me off. <laughs> because because I knew that they had continued to find oil field after oil field after oil field in Guyana. Um, now, like in the last uh, since 2015, I think there's been like uh, 31 discoveries there. Wow. Like like the average field that's been discovered, I want to say, you know, it's it's hundreds of millions of barrels. You know, some of these fields are a billion barrels. And and in addition to these fields uh, being so big. They're even though they're deep water fields, the flow rates are so phenomenal and the reservoir properties are are excellent. The contract terms are good because it was uh, it was like an unproven basin um, and and the break even cost on these developments, these massive developments that are going into play right now are somewhere between twenty five and thirty five dollars a barrel. Wow. So basically, once you do that spend. Yeah. You know, everything beyond that becomes profit. Yep. And um, and so so I think there's been like somewhere between 12 and 13 billion barrels discovered in uh, in deep water Guyana since yeah. 2015. And Hess owns 30% of that. So mm -hmm. at, so so they're in these in, in this block with Exxon, who's the operator. I didn't want to buy Exxon. Because Exxon is such a large company that even though it's had all the success, it's really hard to move the market cap of a major, you know, international company the size of Exxon. Who actually? Let me look real quick. Um, I, I like see if I put down there. Um, They're four hundred and sixty billion dollars. Yeah, four hundred and sixty billion dollars. Uh, so when they find a billion barrels. You know, I mean, what's it going to move the market cap? You know, maybe one percent. Yeah. But but for Hess, if you find a billion barrels, you know, it's only, you know, a um, 70. Well, no, it's 40. It's 42 billion dollars for 42 billion um, dollar market cap. Yep. So so those um, barrels are just so much more valuable to Hess that like that's where I wanted to be. Like I wanted to be in the little brother. You want who, the torque who basically. had 
Yeah, who basically had the free ride. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and because because that was going to be the torque, the market cap torque. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that's why Hess has a PE multiple right now in the twenties. Yeah, it has been. That's yeah, it has been on fire. Like it, like anytime it, like other companies might sell off ten percent. You know, Hess sells off five. You know, I mean, there there just doesn't tend to be big pullbacks in that stock because mm. because it's just on fire. Like everyone knows, they're continuing to find these these fields. They they've got um, like already. Uh, I think they're working on their sixth uh, development plan right now. Like they're asking for it to be approved. So that'll be like the sixth FPSO that moves out there. Uh, they're getting them online, like in record speed, like in just a few years after the final investment decision. And, um, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, that's so, so since I was an industry insider with like keen inside of that basin and I understood the economics and even though I wasn't working for them, you know, in 2016, 2017 point forward, you know, I had watched it. I had followed it, you know, and I, and I, like I said, I, I knew it's worth. Mm -hmm. So, so in March, 2020, when I was investing for the zombie apocalypse, I chose Hess, you know, and then I also chose like, for instance, Chevron, you know, because I, I knew Chevron would survive the zombie apocalypse companies mm -hmm. that have are sitting on cash and have assets that they could always sell if they needed to. I mean, that's that's where I wanted to be. So so I, I pretty much, you know, rot, you know, rode everything up to June and I was just like giddy because I'd already made so much money. Yeah. Um, and and then but then when, when June peaked and it started pulling back on again, you know, I'd kind of like moved some money to the side. But, uh, you know, but I also thought to myself, oh, my God, you know, like I need more money because this thing is going to rally again. Like I knew that the second sell off, I'm like I, I was a head fake. You know, it was it was the market pricing in things that just weren't reality, you know. And uh, and so I had two properties at the time. I had one house that I had leased out to someone else on a three year contract and they wouldn't leave. And I had the house that I had was living in that was fully paid off. I didn't have a mortgage or anything. And uh, and I, I want to say it was like September that like i said things were kind of pulling back and i just was like you know what if i want more money to invest i need to sell this house so i, I put it on the market and within a week i had multiple offers i sold that house uh and and basically the deal was all closed by the end of october okay. and so then uh like, this is october say, 2021 right yeah no october okay. 2020. Oh, okay october okay. 2020 like this is like you know, this was like the Omicron variant. I was about to say, yeah, this is like this, this is a few months after March 2020, negative $35. You're still kind of in that upswing from then. Okay. All right. So continue. Yeah. Yeah. So I had, yeah, I was in an upswing, but, but had pulled back. So it's like, yep. it's like some of the names that I was in, like they had peaked in June, but they had pulled back, but they hadn't pulled back down to their May 2020 numbers. A lot of the really small shell companies actually pulled all the way back down to their like May May 2020 numbers, which were which were ridiculous. So yeah. when I sold my house uh, and got all that cash, I redeployed it into these companies that had had a second bottom, and uh, and I used a little leverage as well. Why not? You know, and and it just so happened that so so I I got my check. I want to say like October 30th for the house. And then I had all the money in play by November 5th and then November 9th, which just so happens to be my birthday. I woke up and they announced the vaccine. 
And that day, like, like everything just started ripping, but I already had that money all on the play. And so, and so then it's like, I, I was just riding that wave up. So I'm not going to say that every company I chose was, were winners. Yeah. Um, but, my, the, but the ones that I had the highest confidence in were the ones that I put the most money into. Yeah. And then I would dabble in other things that sometimes wouldn't work out or whatever else. But, but the point was, is that like, I always had anywhere between, um, like 10 to 20 stocks that I was playing in. You know, I had the most money in the highest confidence ones, little money in ones that, that like maybe looked like they were faulting, but I thought they might work out. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, it's like any time that there was market weakness, I would sell out of all the low conviction ones and then just keep writing my highest confidence ones. And then when things would do well again, I would add, you know, I would add more back. So, so I really, um, I had exposure to obviously like the internationals with, with Hess. Um, I ended up closing out my position in Chevron and then also using that to bottom feed companies that were down like 80%. Cause I, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, even though I'd made, you know, 30 or 40% with Chevron, it's like, it's like, why ride this for another 30 or 40% when I could go buy a company that was sold off by 80% and then basically make like a five bagger. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that's what I did. Like I wasn't, um, uh, I, I, I guess I, I was like, I've tended not to stay beholden to the blue chips. You yeah. know, I've like went into names that are maybe less talked about or less discussed mm -hmm. because I felt like they had uh, the, the most uh, torque to the upside. And then and then now going forward, like in addition to having exposure to higher oil prices, I want to have exposure to scalability. So I'm, I'm staying uh, like my highest confidence positions. They all have a number of expiration opportunities where they've they've already discovered oil or it's really high confidence that they're going to they're going to find barrels here in the next year or two. Mm -hmm. And because uh, because, again, it's like I want that torque. I want that scalability up until now. The market has not been with the exception of Hess because they are giving Hess like it's proper due diligence premium for the fact that it's got all these high quality expiration access. Right. But, th but there's other companies out there like, for instance, Apache you know, that uh, they've, they've had a ton of discoveries, you know, over the last five years, but none of that is being priced into their, you know, into their, um, their holding right now. So. Um, what, what's the ticker symbol for Apache? Okay. So APA it's uh so Apache is actually a legacy. Oh, name, APA Corp. Now it's okay. now APA yeah. Corp. Yep, so yep. Apache. Um, and if I'm jumping ahead, uh, no, you're fine. Just roll me back in. So Apache currently has a PE multiple of 3.8. Um, it's tended to lag because it had a lot of debt, you know, during this uh, downturn. But, you know, obviously now with higher prices, you know, the debt is working itself out of the system. Um, it produces uh, 382,000 barrels of equivalent oil per day. 47% of that is oil. So it's also heavily weighted to gas. So the fact that natural gas prices are down right now also presents an opportunity because I believe that natural gas prices will go back up. And, mm -hmm. and along with that upswing, you know, like Apache would, will also be in an upswing. But, but the number one reason that I hold them is because right 
So where Hess is and Exxon in the Staybrook block in Guyana, like all of their uh, discoveries today, they kind of run in a line and they, they call it the golden lane because it's in this line or string yeah. of pearls. So if you follow that line into Suriname, which is the country right next door, you'll run into block 58, which is held 50% by Total and 50% by Apache. And they've already discovered, uh, they've got five or six discoveries there already. Um, they've done two flow tests, like one was recent. They're, they're, they could potentially be sitting on, like, according to, let me see who it is. So Morgan Stanley believes that that block that they own has 6.5 billion barrels of equivalent oil that's recoverable. Wow. So half as much as what is was in Suriname, but Apache owns half of that. So so um, like what I'm saying is I believe Apache could become the next Hess. <laughs> All they have to do is FID uh, an opportunity that for five years that they've been working on. And, and I think they're getting really, really close. Like, like once they FID that first opportunity, everyone's going to know it's just going to be like one after the other, bam, 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 bam. And, and that scalability is going to come in. So I'm, I'm really excited about, uh, Suriname. Like I'm just as excited about it as I was about Guyana. And, um, it's like I said, it's, it's the sleeper right now. Like, like they're, they're not pricing in their, their expiration upside which can, can transform the company into a in, into something that is uh, like, like they're proven. So Apache's proven developed reserves right now are about a billion barrels. Okay. But if they own half of 6 billion barrels, that ends up yeah, coming add another 3 billion. Like, oh, yeah. So like, it, it billion. becomes like four times as big as it is, three times as big as it is, you yeah. know? So, so it just ends up being a huge opportunity. So, so not only do you have an undervalued stock there, you have a catalyst that mm. has been on this pot brewing, simmering. Um, you know, I mean, if you look on my Twitter profile, I mean, you'll see like sometimes I'm tracking like the rig, like like sometimes I'm pulling up satellite data and I'm like, where's this rig? You know, because I like I want to know like when the activities can start so I yeah. can, you know, kind of start monitoring it. Um, well, why do, you think, like why do you think the market hasn't hasn't given Apache its, you know, it's fair, it's fair shake. Like what is what is the market seeing? um that 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 you think is obviously wrong so the market like i said they're only paying attention to quarter over quarter data yeah. what did you produce this quarter it was oh and it's 53 percent gas and gas is going down oh we're going to keep you on the low side Got it. you know i mean it just i i really i feel like right now the average uh, oil and gas investor i mean they're skittish you know, I mean, first of all, it's super volatile. People don't like seeing their portfolios going up and down 20%, you know, over the course of six months. <laughs> Unless you're a swing trader, then you love it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but but the fact that you have swing traders in there doing all this, like, adds to the volatility, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we actually need more, like, high conviction investors, you know, um, like, not to be buying and selling every quarter. <laughs> Yeah, because because these these, uh, you know, but when you look at the long term trends, I mean, like for a lot of these companies, you know, the when they do swing up, the highs are higher than their previous high. 
And when mm -hmm. they sell down, the lows are higher than the previous highs. So the general uptrend, you know, is intact. You know, yeah. it's still there. Like a lot of these stocks, they're not breaking their um, their uptrends, you know, even though they're uh, they're depressed today. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they're deeply depressed today because, oh, well, it's auction options expiry, you know. So um, <laughs> and yeah. it's almost two years after the COVID crash, more or less. So so people that were playing like long term options two years ago, you know, I mean, you know, you, you kind of also have to look at at when there were big peaks and troughs in the prior couple of years, because you, you don't know who made big bets then, you know, that are ringing the register now. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think that's, uh, you know, like I said, it just, it, it's annoying, you know, because I'm not a swing trader, but, you know, but sometimes it also creates an opportunity because you see something yeah. is just being unfairly punished. Yeah. So, I want to, so. I want to dive into Guyana and, 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 and Suriname. Um, you know, that's one of the areas that, you know, I think, I think you have an edge in at least an understanding and kind of the implications of, of, of what could be in those, in those spaces. But, um, you know what is what is your overall take on on both of those regions? Do you like one more than the other? And then another question is, let's say, you know, both of them kind of take off, and there's so much oil that we don't even know. The reserves are a lot higher than we expect. Like, how does that then weigh on, you know, production and supply as a as 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 maybe a headwind for the price of oil, for instance? Well, the thing about these uh, fields is everything takes time. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Exxon and Hess have potentially found 12 billion barrels, but right now, you know, it's probably about a half a million um, or half a, yeah, half a million barrels per day production, you know, and then over the next couple of years, maybe they'll, they'll reach, you know, 1 million a day production. But, but even though Guyana is scaling up its production, there's a lot of areas in the world that are kind of lagging and faltering. So it, it more or less ends up being an offset, you know, mm. I mean, it's great for Guyana and it's great for investors who knew to put their money in Guyana, but, you know, but, all, but there's weakness around the world and, and it's really just kind of like offsetting this weakness a little bit in my mind. So um, like, I also like Brazil for the same reason that I like Guyana, you know, it's like during this down cycle, you know, Petrobras and Total, like they've found a lot of oil, you know, deep water Brazil. And um, those, uh, you know, like that's also, a, you know, in my mind, a really good opportunity. So Petrobras has sold sold off over this past year, not because of oil underperformance, but, but because of geopolitical risk. And hmm. right now the market is kind of waiting to see whether or not their dividend gets re reinstated. And I think that if the dividend, um, you know, for 2023 is even half as much as it was for 2022. I think that stock is just going to take back off. And then, I mean, it could easily rip up to 14 from $10, which is where it's trading right now. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, that I think that's something else too, that maybe I'm not typical in, you know, in terms of, of the average oil and gas investor is I tend to be more focused, you know, on these deep water basins internationally uh you know versus you know a lot of people they still have their permian pure place you know hats on and and i'm you know i'm like i'm like i i feel like over the coming years that the momentum there is just going to dry up i'm not saying that you're going to lose your money 
but you're not going to make what you were, you know, and, and then you might be kicking yourself because these other basins took off. So, um, so yeah. And, uh, it's, it's like too, if, I mean, if you've seen me on Twitter, you know that I'm always talking about these two little small cap companies. I was just uh, about to bring them up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so it just so happens that there's a block that extends kind of between uh, Hess and Exxon's block and Total and Apache's block. And the tip of it is in this fairway where they're finding all the oil and gas. Hmm. And it's owned by two companies that no one's ever heard of before because one of them is a, uh, it's a small company that pri pri primarily produces oil in Colombia. And they have a little bit of production in uh, in Ecuador, but I mean, small, like like they produce 41 barrels a day. The entire company, one deep water well might make 50,000 barrels a day. So, wow. so it's like, it's like if you own one well in offshore Brazil, that one well might produce more than this company produces on all of its land assets <laughs> you know, per day. But yeah. You know, but this company, which has a PE of one, get 1.3, I mean, like basically it's priced like it's going to dissolve. <laughs> they, they own this block that's in, that's in the fairway in the most coveted basin in the world right now. And they've had a third party come in and, and work up what they, what the reserves potential is in that block and the acreage that they hold uh 67% of outright could have 6 billion barrels in it so it's like it's like this company could go from currently they have let me see how many prove that um if they have less than a billion barrels of approved um Anyway, anyway, they have they have less than a billion barrels of approved resources in Colombia and Ecuador, mm -hmm. but they could be sitting on uh, four to six billion barrels in this one block in Guyana. It wow. could it could just the the company could just I mean it could easily be a ten bagger, <laughs> you know I mean it's it it could be a twenty bagger over the next ten years, you know. Yeah. So uh, because because in addition to that block, they also have they're the whole owner of a deep water port in, in Cartagena. And, and so they're making money off of all the exports that are going through that port from Equipatrol and all, all these big companies. And I, and I think everyone knows that emerging markets are just going to scale in the years ahead. You know, I mean, everyone's looking to displace Russian, um, you know, imports and uh, or, sorry, you know, exports. And, and so they'll look to these other regions of the world to like, you know, backfill that quantity. So there's the port there and, and, and their partner, CGX Energy. So they're a Guyana pure play. So they don't have any production. All they own is, is uh, you know, about 30% of this expiration license. And they, they're developing what's going to be the first deep water port in Guyana. That deep water port is going to be active by the end of this year. And 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 it's going to service uh, not only Guyana but Suriname, and it's going to unlock a lot of trapped resources that are inland Brazil, because mm -hmm. there is a they're they're on the mouth of a river 
that runs all the way up to inland Brazil. So, so now, you know, you're going to have all these crops and everything flowing through this port. And, and, you know, so by the end of the year, we'll start seeing, you know, cash flow there, like no matter what their, their, um, that's expiration license does. So, uh, so how do you think, think about, how do you think about valuing these companies? Like when you go and check out some of these smaller caps, like when you value them, is it simple, is it something simple as, you know, Hey, what's the cost to produce per barrel? And then like, what's a reasonable estimate for maybe how many barrels they can produce, you know, over the next two to three years and then put some sort of discount on that. So I, I do do those, um, like, like, so when I first started looking at this opportunity, what I did was I modeled out what a 1 billion barrel discovery would look like, you know, because a 1 billion barrel discovery, it might not just be one field. It might be like two fields that are close enough together that you can tie them into one FPSO that would develop 1 billion barrels. And, and, you know, we've got those benchmarks like in, uh, in the Staybrook block with Hess and Exxon. So, you know, so I felt like, Hey, if, if the, um, you know, if someone who's looking at their uh, reserves thinks that six billion barrels could be there, then I could easily defend them being able to produce one billion of that. Yeah. And so I've I've basically built out um, like 30 year development plans. And and so I've, I've built out like how many expiration wells it would probably take for them to delineate the asset, figure out how big it is. And then I put in like the cost of the SPSO and, and I've, I've, I've built like these big economic models for them. Um, the, the thing is, as a retail investor, I mean, I can put all my information out there, but no one understands it. So, mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but, but for me, it's like, oh, that was fun. Right. Um, but what they do understand is when you can take a deal as a benchmark. And, and so when, so originally that first expiration well that Apache drilled in Suriname, while they were drilling that well, Total came in and farmed into the block. So they basically said, we'll give you $2 a barrel right now. And uh, based on what, what you think is, is, is here. And, um, you know, if you give us half the asset. And so, and so like I've basically constructed a table for CGX Energy and for Terra Energy, looking at their third party perspective resources. And I've, I've applied $2 a barrel for it, you know, and then and then kind of like on a on an upside, like sweet side case. I mean, this is the most coveted um, acreage in the world. There's so much more information about this now versus when Total did this deal five years ago. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm like now I think it wouldn't be unheard of to see five dollars or six dollars a barrel like like there are cases in the in the history of of oil and gas exploration for these coveted assets where people will come in and they'll pay, pay a premium you know because they know that like in, if you're in these fairways it's always going to be more than one discovery so you know if if, if one hits then you're going to find three hits or four hits i mean you're going to find stuff all around it i mean just look at the gulf of mexico you know, I mean, that asset has been on, you know, longer than I've been alive. And it's because it's because in these deep water fields, there's just so many layers and so many traps for hydrocarbons that they just keep finding more traps. And and that's why you can still go um, invest in, in Gulf of Mexico companies today. And they still have running room, you know, mm -hmm. even though those fields are 20 years old. 
you know, because they're still finding new traps. So, I mean, what a great place to be invested in, right? I mean, like, like, you know, those fields might might live longer than I do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, a lot of, so a lot of the valuation you do, again, like you said, you're a longer term investor where most retail is thinking quarter to quarter, you're thinking, you know, three, five, 10 years down the road. That implies that you have maybe some sort of underlying, we'll call it like a bull super cycle thesis in oil or in commodities. Um, and so if that is the case, it would be great to get a picture of how you think about maybe if we are in the early stages of a super cycle and then how you expect that to unfold obviously with a wide range of potential outcomes because you know, oil is probably the most volatile and largest market in the world and you know so just kind of give us your thought process on 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 the on the logical inputs that go into whatever your view is long term on oil okay so definitely i'm a super cycle bull um we're the, the industry has been undercapitalized now for eight years even though there's been discoveries made in Guyana and Brazil and, and other places around the world, like when you look at that amount of resource discovered, it's still not as high as it needs to be. And, and yet our burn rate, you know, it's it, like globally, our burn rate is really high and it's still expected to be high 20 and 30 years from now. So, so, you know, even with like all these capital budgets that are coming out now, I mean, they're still restrained. Because the volatility in the in the oil prices doesn't give a company a lot of confidence to go out there and ramp their exploration budget up to twice what it is, because they know that the market will hammer them if they do that. Mm -hmm. So so Total, they just did a two hours earning earnings call. So if you're really motivated, you can go listen to that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, but during the call, that you know, they're they're basically saying, yeah, you know, we'll FID new projects, but it's got to break even in the 30s. A $30 per barrel hurdle rate wow. is a That's tough low. hurdle. But if you can if you can FID a project at 30, oh my gosh, it's like a freaking cash machine, right? Yeah. So wow. and 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 he, you know, and he named, you know, another a number of of company of countries where he felt like they had assets that could deliver that, you know, being um, you know, uh Suriname, Brazil, you know, and potentially offshore Namibia, although there is only one well drilled over there. So he also uh, told everybody not to get too excited because it takes time to acquire data. I mean, you don't find out if a, if a field is commercial off of only drilling one well. But if you've got a lot of data all around you from other contractors having, you know, found oil and then put it on production, you can have a whole lot more confidence with that one well <laughs> that, that it's going to make it. So uh, like I said, I, I, I'm always talking about Frontera Energy and CGX Energy because they are drilling a second well right now. Last year, they had a discovery. The market didn't believe it. They thought that it was gas. And um, even though they said, no, we found light oil, the, the, uh, the real issue was they weren't able to acquire um, clean fluid uh, data at the bottom of the well because it was, it was an expiration well was really high pressured and there started to be some safety concerns. And so they basically was like, Hey, you know, this is, this is a no risk, you know, environment. We can't take on this extra risk to try to, to try to get these final log datas. You know, let's just go ahead and shut it in. They, they had enough for them to know, keep going. Mm -hmm. And so, and so now they're drilling this second field that was, is within tieback distance of their first discovery. This field, like looking at the seismic that they've shared, uh, looks to be even bigger. 
if not twice as big as their first field. And uh, and it would all link together. And they're also they're also like there's 27 prospects just in this one little block that they're that they're drilling. So. um, So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm super excited about it. It's it's early days. It's probably going to take a few more months before the wells complete. But Mm -hmm. um, there was a conference in Guyana this past week and the the partners jointly presented and and they basically told, you know, the. you know, the industry, you know, the well's going well, we've set two of our casing points. I mean, they're, they're working their way on down to bottom. So um, they're going to give their, uh, they'll have their earnings report coming out next month. And, and hopefully uh, when they report the earnings, um, they'll say that they've set their fourth casing <laughs> and, and we'll just be continuing to wait and hopefully getting an update, you know, every time they set a casing point. Yeah. So, um, but, but if they find oil, um, I, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm just like, these are these are unheard of opportunities for for most of the market but the people that do know about them i mean they're patient they're just like slowly acquiring because they are thinly traded stocks so you got to be really careful about how you play them Um, some companies uh like some investment you know groups they won't buy a company that has zero uh cash flow so they will only buy you know frontera and then and then there's other uh retail traders who basically want a stock that maybe has a little bit higher volume. And so, you know, they, they want to buy CGX energy. I, I think eventually Frontera will absorb CGX energy because even though these companies are partners, Frontera energy owns 70% of CGX energy stock. They are like the only institutional investor in there. So CGX energy is purely moving by retail uh, animal spirits, you know, retail sentiment. No, yep. no, uh, you know, uh, institutional money is playing in there because the only institution is neither buying nor selling. And uh, and then in uh, Frontera, it, like it has not been moving with the price of oil. It's actually been moving with the Columbia. So all of the companies that are in Columbia have sold off because Colombia has been one of the worst performing countries, like their currency has just been hammered, you know, this past year. And because of that, Frontera got hammered, even though they are sitting on an asset in another country that is potentially going to transform them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I really think that that, like, it's the perfect uh, Michael Burry opportunity. It's roadkill that is worth so much more money than it's currently traded at. Like, you know I like Burry stuff, so yeah. Me, well, I mean, me I'm, trust me, this is it. Like I'm, I'm like so eager and enthusiastic about this play that I got on a freaking red eye and flew down to and flew down to Bogota to attend their uh, investor day presentations. You know, <laughs> just because I wanted to meet like like all of the key players in the company, I wanted to look them in the eye and know that they were technically competent. Yeah. Well, and that I think again goes back to your expertise because. I mean, in theory, anybody could fly down and go to the investor day, but to look someone in the eye and 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 to have the background you do and to make that judgment call of, hey, I think this person has the technical skills. Like there are not many people in the, I would say, oil and gas space that can say that with, you know, backing it up with the with the experience that someone like yourself has. And it 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 kind of brings to mind the question of management because a lot of a lot of these stories, especially in the smaller cap oil and gas, you can run into these snake oil salesmen, you know, no pun intended, where they say, oh, we've got billions and billions. 
you know, in the ground, like, trust me, it's coming, it's coming. And then it never happens. And, and, and they rope investors in with all their money. So how do you then assess management? Is it, is it something, you know, way softer? Like, you know, you just kind of get a feel for them and based on the people you've interacted with in your experience, like you kind of judge it against that yardstick or is it more, you know, Hey, what have they done in the past? And as long as their past record is okay, I have a little bit more confidence. I mean, I will put really pointed hard questions to these people and I will see how they respond. Yeah. You know, are, are like, are they going to follow it up with confidence and with the, and, and with the response that is, um, uh, indicative of, of, of a level of acumen that they need to have in that role? Or are they trying to like divert me to something else, you know, waffle around, make excuses. You know, I, I just, um, I can't stand stomach excuse makers, you know, <laughs> like, like, like if someone, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I just, that, that is, that is one thing I, I need, I need to know that the technical rigor is there and, and also that the, uh, humility is there because, um, like, like for instance, like early on, one of my fears with this, um, with this block was that these two small companies were going to find oil and then they were going to take it all the way into development, you know, because, and because, because I thought that was going to be a risk. I'm like, I'm like, these are primarily um, like offshore, like an offshore producer, like a heavy oil producer. And now they're stepping out into deep water where they're drilling for light oil. I mean, it's a completely different skill set. It's a huge expenditure yeah. too. Yeah. Well, but not per barrel. Per, right. per barrel, the like I said, it's every like there's this huge focus on rig cost and capex expenditure, but but when you talk about what's expensive, I think I think something that costs fifty dollars a barrel to bring to surface is expensive. I think something that that costs thirty dollars a barrel to bring to surface is cheap. Right. I guess no matter how you get to that thirty, right, as long as that number is somewhere around thirty. Like to you, that's cheap. Like what might look like the inputs of that 30, like if those look expensive, that doesn't really matter. Like what matters is what's the cost per barrel. Yeah. I mean, you know, but again, it's kind of all relative, right? Because I used yeah. to be a deep water drilling engineer. The, the last time that I personally was responsible for planning and executing a well was in 2013. I drilled an exploration well in deep water uh, Australia. It cost about $140 million. You know, I'm like, I'm mm -hmm. used to a million dollar a day spin. No problem. So right. long as, as the resources are down there, let's go get it. Yep. You know, so, <laughs> and, you know, because again, I think like big oil, you know, I don't want, if I have a hundred people to deploy on an opportunity, I want those 100 people deployed an opportunity that's going to get me the most barrels at the lowest cost versus, versus being a group that has to just like continually reinvent themselves you know, on, on a short cycle, uh, low duration opportunity. So, um, and, and I think that, uh, kind of what you're hearing from me, you're probably going to hear from a lot more people like a year down the road. Hmm. So there's a few people right now that are starting to see and capitulate a little bit, but it's going to take time for them to realize like what I already know from having been in the industry since 2000, you know, it's, it's just, it's the cycle. It's the way things work. You know, it's the fact that a lot of these shale fields that were the darlings for the investment community, they, um, you know, they're they're getting a little long in the teeth. So, you know, oil fields, when they when they're new, they produce a lot. 
And then over time, the pressure in those fields decline. And what usually ends up happening is, is their gas, the percentage of gas that they increase grows. And, and natural gas is lower, lower uh, value per volume than the oil is. And so it shifts the economics of the play. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's also a reason why the U.S. has a lot of natural gas. You know, it's because we have a lot of legacy oil fields that over time shifted from being heavy fluids to being heavy natural gas. Hmm. So. No, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, we're kind of wrapping up here a little bit over an hour, but I want to I want to get your take on how, and I've, I've asked this question for every oil and gas person that's come on the podcast so far, um, how new investors can best learn the industry. And the way I frame it or have framed it is, you know, how, how, how should someone go from zero to one? Should they read as many books as possible in the industry? Should they talk to industry experts as much as possible? Should they just read every investor presentation or every 10K, you know, throughout the subsectors across the value chain? Like, how would you allocate your time? Let's say, you know, you've got 10 hours in a day to allocate to research, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. Like, how much of that of 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 that block of hours like would you devote to reading history talking to people reading 10ks and investor presentations so in terms of books and again i i've i've heard a lot of books being um recommended on your show i don't know if those would really help people now mm -hmm. um in, in like you know especially when you have a limited amount of time for research there are like a ton of good podcast, you know, like even like your own, you know, I mean, but you kind of like look at all opportunities, right? So mm -hmm. you're talking about oil and gas right now because oil and gas is in vogue, but, but there's other podcasts out there that only talk about oil and gas or oil and gas and mining. So like, for instance, a macroeconomics or sorry, macro voices, it yep. comes out once a week. It's like an hour podcast. I, I listen to that every week. You know, I want to hear what these guys are saying. They used to be commodities traders. Um, I like Platts Capital Crude. Uh, they uh, and there's also like a Platts uh, Commodity Focus. So they'll they'll talk about general things that are occurring within the world in terms of regulation and uh, and then also shifts and things like that. And and sometimes the things that they're saying, which are actually boots on the ground commodity flow information, it's completely different than what you're hearing on CNBC, which is a lot of misinformation mm. oftentimes. So like I said, I, I really like that um, podcast. Um, and is that the S&P Global Commodity Insights? Yeah, yeah. And, but there's okay. a lot of spinoffs from that. So they have okay. one that's called Platts Capital Crude, uh, another one called, you know, Commodity Insights. I mean, there's there's a number of them, you know, depending on what you're uh, kind of what you're trying to narrow in on. Um, let me see if I forgot any. You know what another one is that I like? And... You know, I don't have any like. Oh, super uh, spiked. That's that's actually I would tell a lot of people to start with super spiked. Uh, so Arjun, he yep. used to work for Goldman Sachs. He worked with Michael Curry, <laughs> kind of like he was kind of like uh, the opposite of Michael Curry. And 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 so he started this new uh, podcast called Super Spiked and the information that he has put out there. I mean, it's like a masterclass on on oil and gas. Nice. So actually start there. Start. Yeah. I think <laughs> he's got 16 episodes or something. 16 huh? or 17 episodes so far. So yeah, I mean, you, and, and it looks like they're all like 20, 18, 20 minutes. You can bang through these. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly. So I mean, you really got to learn. Cool. 
Yeah, you're really going to learn quick. There's uh, there's another um, podcast slash YouTube called um, Primary Vision Network. And so they put out like a lot of macroeconomics, like they'll talk about where tankers are moving and kind of general themes that they're seeing. They'll yeah. even bring in like what's happening with food prices, you know, That's and where geopolitical unrest is occurring, you know, famine, things like that. I mean, th these are all podcasts and YouTubes that I have like heavily relied upon, um, you know, for the last couple of years. I mean, Su Super Spike actually just came out. But the mm. other ones I've been listening to, like ever since I got deep into the trade, you know, in 2020. Yeah. Um, another another good one that I've found recently, and you know, again, I have no relation to this podcast or affiliation, but Commodity Culture by Jesse Day. That's a very good one. Yeah, I've actually not heard of that one. So. Yeah, I would put that on your list. That one's good. It's 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 a mix of oil and precious metals uranium i think jesse's big on uranium um but that's but that's a good one but like all the other ones that you said i have not heard of so i i added those to my to my rolodex of of weekly listens yeah and and like i said the the, the ones that are by s and b s and p global which also a lot of times goes by plats uh i mean the, the regulatory aspects are also very interesting yeah and like especially if you're also interested in um like alternative fuels so they'll 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 dive into how uh, certain fuel types are getting credits and offsets and and basically free passes and rides and things like that. So yeah. so it also gives I I think it gives like the listener a better awareness of how all these different fuel types truly compete. Right. Because because you know it's you can only throw some money at something for so long, you know, before eventually you're like, hey, you know, the, this. Uh, this alternative technology or alternative energy source, it, it needs to be able to stand on so two feet in mm -hmm. order to survive, right? Yeah, and that's what that's that's what my my last guest or the podcast that I released uh, this uh, this morning, Brian Git, that was his whole philosophy. Is he he for a long time believed in solar and wind and all of these things, but um, and he's based out of California. And, and what what ended up changing his mind was the fact that he saw all of this money, basically a Goldilocks scenario for something like solar or wind to work like if it was going to work this was the perfect environment you had all the money you had all the political backing you had all the momentum and from a economic standpoint or even you know energy produced based on you know energy input um it it just it still didn't compare to something like coal to something like natural gas or oil and so i i i, I completely agree like there comes a point where you can throw dollars at something but if if it's just not yielding that energy for each dollar of energy that goes in, you you know it makes you wonder what the what the terminal value of a technology like that is. Well, especially now that carbon storage is ramping up. Yeah. So now now that carbon storage, like like one of the companies that I mentioned briefly and we didn't talk about, but I wish we would have talked about more was Talos Energy. They're a mid-sized company in the Gulf. Well, we can talk about them now for sure. Talos. Okay. <laughs> Talos. It's T A L O. So okay. they're they're a mid-sized company in the Gulf of Mexico. They actually just did a uh, an acquisition that makes them the sixth largest oil producer in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, they've got a, a huge discovery that they found over the last few years uh, in the Mexican side of the Gulf of Mexico called Zama. They've got another discovery from a couple of years ago that they're the partner in in the GOM side called Puma West that uh, BP is the operator of. They they just uh, found they had two discoveries like this near infrastructure discovery. 
Uh, I mean, if you go look at their investor presentation, I mean, they've just got like a queue of opportunities in order to grow and scale their production. But the the super sexy thing about them, in addition to their um, their uh, exploration, is that they've actually been like a first mover securing all these carbon storage spaces along the Gulf Corridor. So, so 50% of refineries in the United States are along the Gulf Coast. And, and, and Talos has strategically went and, and got these storage sites along, like near them. They're, they're uh, partnering with all the majors. And it's not that they're buying into majors. Like majors are actually buying into their carbon storage sites. And the recent um, uh, spending bill, the, uh, the infrastructure plan, it increased the carbon credit from $50 a metric ton up to $80 a, a metric ton. So, mm -hmm. so Talos Center Energy, in addition to being the sixth largest producer of oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico, with all the scalability in terms of their production, is also going to have like this alternative um, revenue stream coming from what, you know, carbon storage which who's to say what that rev revenue stream grows to over the next decade. Right. So again, long-term investment, you know, like multiple catalyst. I mean, like that's that, I mean, I'm, that's where I'm at. Like I'm like miss catalyst, right? Like, the stock gotten, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, it's like, gotta be more than just the price of oil. That's what this, I want to be. Yeah. I mean, the know? stock's gotten absolutely bombed since 2015. Yeah. And I don't know if this is a split adjusted basis, but it was like $800 a share and now it's down to $18. Maybe there's been the some split. No, away. it was never it was never $800 a share. Okay. It was it was uh like I want to say close to 30 in okay. Yeah, it was cl close to 30 I want to say in 2019. He pulled up. I can yeah, I can talk you through it if you have questions. Yeah, no, I mean, well, I'm I've I I just I love getting these kind of off the beaten path ideas, and it looks like they're trading at three times earnings, one point five billion market cap, um, just kind of for left and forgotten over the last you know two or two or three years. Um, but no, I mean, yeah. I would I would I would have to do more work. I don't really have any questions on this because I I didn't I didn't know it existed. So that's yeah, just, well, that's, one that's, that's, why, the, that's uh, why we had this talk, right? That's that's why we have this podcast. That's why they play the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like I said, it's, it's, it's sitting on multiple catalysts. Um, the, the one risk for this year is that, like I said, they just did, uh, they just approved this acquisition. And then now the company that they just bought, it's going to hold like 35% of their shares. So there is the potential that that company decides to go ahead and, and ring the register. Cause yep. a lot of times, like after deals, these venture capitalist companies, that got a lot of shares from a deal like like the deal was where their upside was like like small investors they make the mistake of thinking that these other companies price targets are the same as their own yeah that's not how these guys work like they they make their money up front and then they go deploy it into another opportunity they don't ride it until the peak so so there are uh, there are a lot of companies that you're going to see in oil and gas that do a big um, acquisition or merger and then the following year, you're going to see that the stock performance lags. Mm -hmm. And and if you notice that happening, you know, if you dive in and then if you find out that it's been because some big shareholder who got shares from a merger has been cashing out, just wait until they're out and then buy it because the following right. year, they're probably going to rip to the upside. Right, right. And you, you can kind of release that 
massive overhang that's been yeah. just constant yeah, so pressure. Dallas, like I said, it's got all these catalysts, but it also has that as potential negative. So yeah. I don't know what's going to win out, you know, in the year ahead, but I do think that where it's currently priced, I mean, it's just, it's cheap. So if you're a long-term investor, you know, I mean, it's, it's already pulled back in my opinion. I can't see it getting cheaper than this. Of course, yeah. you can always be wrong because this is a stock market. Famous and, last um, <laughs> <laughs> Things sell off by no fault of their own. It happens, yeah. you know, um, you know, but I, I think, I think, it, I like, I think that could be a double over the next two to three years. Nice. So, well, you, so yeah. you Every, mentioned everything I own, I only own because I think it's going to at least double. Well, there you go. There you go. So you mentioned I'm earlier, like that. you know, I'm greedy. Yeah. You mentioned the podcast as a great resource for new investors. Would you, you know, let's say half the time is spent, you know, diving through the backlog of these podcasts that have excellent conversations. And then would the next half just be going through and getting your hands dirty, researching these businesses, like reading their filings, reading their investor presentations, and then through the accumulation of all of that knowledge of, you know, going through maybe an entire industry's investor presentation decks. Um, do you think that's, you know, another great way of maybe getting to know and getting to ramp up as much as you can? Well, again, it kind of all depends, right? Yeah. So if you're someone who you want to be a full-time oil and gas investor, like I am, you know, I mean, I easily spend 50 to 60 hours a week doing nothing but listening to podcasts, running screens, diving into uh, investor presentations. You know, I mean, like I said, I'll listen to uh, research reports until, you know, I can't take it anymore. And then I'll give it a week and then I'll come back and listen to them again. So, <laughs> so, so it's like, I'm always trying to like find these key insights, you know, mm -hmm. or pick up like these little jewels that you won't get unless you uh, like listen to these CEOs talk for two hours about their company. So, yeah. so that I don't know whether or not that's the best way to do it, but that's also because I'm fully invested. I mean, the, the majority of my money's here. You know, I mean, I'm like, I, you know, I'm I'm at risk. So it's like I want to know what my, uh, you know, what what's happening. You know, yeah. especially when there's a when there's a, a a pullback. You know, it's like it's like, hey, is this pullback real? Is this is this a symptom of something wrong with the company, or or is this uh, an opportunity? you know, to maybe add more to the position. Yeah. So if, every, if everything's moving together, you know that it's really just like, you know, oil and the commodity price that's, that's pushing things. But anytime mm -hmm. something flattens when the rest of the sector has momentum or vice versa, I mean, you want to understand what's going on. And, and, and a lot of times I might not even be in a company, you know, but I'll see that it has momentum one way or the other. And I'll just, I'll tr go try to figure out like what's driving that momentum. Um, I don't tend to chase momentum. Um, I'm not really comfortable doing that. But if I've seen it occur in one stock, then sometimes I'll go check out the peer group to figure out whether or not that could occur maybe in one of their peers. Mm -hmm. so. Got it. Now, for someone new that's just starting, is there like a subsector or a part of the value chain that you'd recommend them study first? Or does it not really matter? Uh, I mean, again, you know, I just think that it really it's really going to depend on the um, on the investor. You know, I mean, some people just aren't going to be comfortable with geopolitical risk. And so they're going to want to stay on U.S. focused assets um, or they're going to want to stay, you know, with like the G7 allied nations type countries. Um, and then and then there's other people who, um, you know, better understand uh, geopolitics or, or maybe are just like a little bit more emerging market savvy. And, you know, 
and and they'll be a little bit more like me, you know, like they're going to be wanting to take the risk, you know, with those emerging markets. Um, I think another interesting company, which I wasn't invested in, but if you look at their stock performance, um, so so YFP, it's it's like Argentinian oil and gas company, yep, I've and heard it of absolutely them. ripped this last year. But then you look at what Argentina did. I mean, Argentina ripped. And so, and so Colombia, which has been completely beaten down as a country and every company, no matter whether it's oil or banking or whatever in Colombia has been beaten down. But if, but if that Colombia index and if the Colombian, uh, you know, peso uh, turns or dollar or whatever it is, turns back around, like all those assets are going to be a buy and you could see Equipatrol and Talos Energy and all these, and all these companies that are considered part of that Colombia basket will be overweighted. And then they'll rip just because of that. Yep. You know. So, oh, so again, sense. it's kind of like it's like it's like what you want, like what you're interested in. And and I guess really that would be my advice. And I is it would be focus in on what you're interested in. You know, I mean, if you're interested in geopolitics, then find a way to play oil based off of geopolitics. If you're interested in technology, then go find the the technology that you think is the coolest, and then you go find ways to play that with an oil and gas. You know, or if you're just like a dividend steady state investor, you know, go find those plays that are pretty steady state. But then, you know, they're giving you that quarterly divvy and, and that's all you want. So it's it's just I mean, everything's personal, right? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, no, those are good points. And just wrapping up the last two questions I'd ask every guest, where can people go to find out more about you? We we connected on Twitter. So if you want to drop your your Twitter handle here. Yeah. So my Twitter handle is she drills. Because I used to be a drilling engineer, <laughs> and I'm very pro drilling. <laughs> there you go. And uh, yeah, I'm like very active, more active than I should be probably on Twitter. <laughs> um, I'll actually tweet out like things that I'm hearing on earnings calls, which is probably why I have got so many followers. You know, even though I'm not, you know, a financial advisor, or you know, it's because I'm like actually real time saying things. Yeah. And, yeah. You also, you also um, do some good Twitter spaces, by the way. Those are fun. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll participate in those sometimes. I mean, some like like I've actually I actually participate in less now because I feel like they're just starting to they're just regurgitating everything that's been said for last year or two. <laughs> mm -hmm. So so I can kind of only say the same thing you know over and over so many times before I'm just bored with it you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, everyone wants me to talk about you know uh, these expiration plays. So I shouldn't say everyone, but that that uh, group of investors who like speculative exploration investing. I mean, they want me to talk about those, which which I enjoy nice. because I'm I'm all up in it. So um, yeah. yeah, and then uh, so on LinkedIn, I'm I'm you know I'm very visible on LinkedIn. I don't post as much, but I've got a public profile. So. Cool. And then the last question that I ask everyone, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Yeah. So when you first uh, presented that to me, kind of like the typical people uh, came to mind, you know, um, you know, Michael Burry or maybe, you know, T-Boom Pickens. But the more I thought about it, the more I, I was like, you know what? I think I would want to have dinner with Saudi Arabia's oil minister, Prince Abdulaziz. Because he attends all these OPEC meetings, you know, he could tell me what it's like to herd cats, you know, and these cats being oligarchs and diplomats, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that that, you know, if you could get him drunk and probably he doesn't drink because, you know, he's Saudi Arabian, but, but, you know, but if you could get him to just like have no filter, the information that would come out of his mouth, I think would just be oh, uh, yeah. so enlightening and exciting to hear. 
Um, and then uh, as far as like someone who doesn't currently exist, um, you know, I mean, yeah, we all like to make money, but I'd really like to talk to my grandma again. So, so, yeah. you know, it'd be like my grandma who's deceased and then Prince of Beulzee's. Awesome. So. Well, Christine, thank you so much for doing this. This was a fantastic conversation. I learned so much. I, I think everybody listening is going to take away a lot of nuggets for this and maybe even listen to it a couple of times. And thanks for giving us so many interesting ideas to spend a lot of time researching. I know I've got you know three or four that I just added to my watch list. So thanks so much and, and best of luck in this in this super cycle here. Yeah, definitely. And if you have any questions, you know, just ping me. I love to talk about my plays. So 